coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss how an aluminum giant was foiled by Locker Goga ransomware, shocking heart defibrillator vulnerabilities, and introducing Endless SSH, the pit of despair. Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number seven, recorded on March 25th, 2019. I'm your co-host, Kelsey, people of the pun, LaBelle. With me, co-host, Tarek Sela, a true lover of shoes and philosophy, known as Socrates, around the office. And last but not least, Tim Helming, a genuine rambling man who will try not to ramble too much during this Tim, you're so self-deprecating. You're so hard on well, yourself. Well, I was going to say, no promises. No promises. No, no promises here. And, and you know, Socrates, I love it, or Sock rates, like, you should do ratings. <laughs> reviews, product reviews. I like it. Yeah. These are comfy. These are not comfy. These are terrible. My big toe feels awfully compressed in this sock. Helpful information to know. Anyway, on that note, I think it's a really healthy time maybe to turn to the aluminum giant foiled by Locker Gogo ransomware, or as the Brits would say, aluminium giant. I just want to make sure we're culturally inclusive in this podcast. That's a good point. Yes, very important. Um, So basically, according to this article on Hacker News, Norsk Hydro, one of the world's largest producers of aluminum, a.k.a. aluminium, has been forced to shut down after several of its plants across Europe and the U.S., um, had an extensive cyber attack. That is probably not a good email chain to be on. That is unfortunate. So we're going to be discussing that in some depth today. And so we're going to jump right in. And Tarek, I'm going to ask you to talk through this cyber attack, how it was initially detected, what are the implications of this attack? Yeah, yeah. At? So I feel really sorry for Norse Kydro. Um So uh, in the last 13 months, their share prices have kind of already taken a hit because of a court-ordered shutdown following a spill at one of their plants. And then the cyber attack occurred, the ransomware attack, and then their shares following the attack went down an additional 2.1%. It's a bargain these days. (laughs) Get your Norse Hydro right now. (laughs) So um, some of the threat until data that we know right now, um, there isn't much in the public sector. So we can't really say that this was like a specifically like an explicitly targeted attack. Norse Hydro could have been compromised um, through a like watering hole attack or a really simple malicious document attack that was completely happen chance. Uh, so we don't know if this is um, really tied to any sophisticated threat actors um, because ransomware generally is kind of like a fuzzy area in the attack space where you see it being leveraged by more sophisticated threat actors as well as completely unsophisticated ones across the board. I um, have to reference once again because it can never be referenced too many times. The Canadian tuxedo threat actor. I think we need to rebrand them. I'm really stuck on this, Tarek. I'm sorry I've done this to you twice, but um, I think sophisticated is overused in this industry, one could say. So we should just go tuxedo Canadian. I like it. That's tuxedo. People will completely understand, I think, think, inherently. Yeah, it'll be the term of art, you know, going forward, I'm sure. Okay. Glad you're on this, Tim. This is on you. And so with the uh, with uh, Norse Hydro getting uh, compromised, um, a ransomware variant out there called Locker Goga, um, which is like a Windows-based ransomware, um, 
This was only previously seen before um, with a major attack on a French consulting company um, last year. And it's laid kind of silent um, until then, until the Norse Hydro compromise occurred. And I can talk a little bit about like the behaviors of, of uh, Locker Goga if you want. Yes, um, that'd be very interesting. Let's have some Locker talk. Yeah, let's talk Goga. So this one is pretty traditional, like in following a lot of the behavior patterns of normal ransomware. Um, so normal ransomware, um, just to kind of level set, typically targets, um, it's an executable. Um, they come in all different you know, attack vectors through malicious emails or sometimes downloading a trojanized application on the internet. Um, you get them all different types of ways. But typically what happens is you have this executable that targets specific file extensions. So they look for like your uh, Microsoft Office document files, your PDF files. And Goga really follows that behavior. Ransomware typically also drops like a ransomware note on your desktop that you open up and usually gives you a means to pay uh, for like a fee to be able to get your encrypted files back or get them decrypted. Um, and Goga follows that pattern to the T. Where Goga gets a little bit different is that it actually goes a little bit above and beyond uh, normal targeting of like Office files. It does those, but it also targets JavaScript files and Python files, mm. which I think is kind of interesting. So this one may be targeting uh, developers. Um, or at least be a little bit more aware of uh, developer-type uh, folks. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And uh, Goga, um, I've never seen this in a ransomware sample before, um, so I'm really looking forward to analyzing this myself. But it, Goga also modifies the password for each user on the computer. And this happens post-encryption, too. So I think that's kind mm -hmm. of an interesting attack vector of, of locking a user out. Um, so I'm really curious to see how... The sample, uh, you know, when I reverse it and analyze it, how that kind of plays together with the ransom note because you want to time it correctly so you don't lock the user out. I was going to um, say, before they can see the note. Before they can yeah, see the note. Yeah, how do you see yeah. the ransom note if you're locked out? <laughs> that yeah. could have a poor effect on one's revenue, I would yeah. think, yeah. Right, it's kind of self-defeating <laughs> on the whole ransomware thing. Yes. <laughs> you had one job. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited to analyze it. I think it'll be pretty interesting. So is that not an attack vector that you typically see for with basically locking out their passwords and stuff yes. or resetting their passwords? Exactly. I've never seen that. That's actually pretty non-traditional. Most ransomware just targets the files. You know, they look for your document files, they encrypt them, and they give you the ransomware note. This one goes a little bit above and beyond. It does that pattern behaviorally, but it also resets the user accounts as well. Hmm. Um, so um, Kind of interesting. I'm curious to see how that plays. Apparently, from other write-ups I've seen, it does it post-encryption. So I'm really excited to play with the sample and take a look myself. One of the things I always wonder about with ransomware is, you know, I, kn I know there's a certain amount of it out there, um, and this is especially true for the ones that have been out there longer, that uh, people have been able to crack them and you can get a decryption key, you know, for a lot of them. I don't know whether there's one for Locker Goga or whether that's likely to come along. And, but, you know, among the multiple reasons that it's a good idea not to pay the ransom, especially at the beginning, is that a lot of times you, you may be able to get your files back for free. Do you, do you, have you ever heard any kind of a stat on like how many of the ransomware families have a, a decrypt key available? Yeah, you know, over time you have enough security researchers that if you have a malware, a ransomware variant that's, you know, strong enough in popularity, um, you'll have security researchers kind of independently, and sometimes companies do it as well. I believe Talos did for... Um, one of the, I think it was uh, not Petya, I can't remember. Mm. But I, if I recall correctly, Talos was involved 
with actually reversing uh, a common malware or ransomware sample and providing the decryption tool uh, to the public. So over time, you have, uh, for more of your popular ones, people dedicating resources to, you know, um, hooking it up to a debugger, kind of stepping through the code and looking for the decryption key um, and reversing that and providing it out. Um, sometimes there's tools to, once you kind of like understand how the ransomware generates its key through like an algorithm, you know, if you're able to reverse that, you can write like a decryption tool and offer that out. So we'll see. Locker Goga doesn't seem to be too widespread. It seems very isolated to two big incidents, but that's yet to be determined. Maybe I could find it. We'll see. <laughs> that is if he does, you'll hear about it here first. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have our cute breaking news special song. That that's right. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, that's a very um, curious situation. I'll be curious to follow that. Tim, you mentioned that you were really interested in the way that Norsk handled the public notification of the incident. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, if you look at the press releases that they did and the notifications and updates and stuff, these guys did a great job, I thought, of, um, you know, they sort of demonstrated how you ought to do this um, from the standpoint of letting people know what's going on. They're not disclosing so much that they, you know, perhaps unintentionally make themselves more vulnerable. But they're also not sidestepping the issue. They talk pretty frankly about the fact that they had something happen. They also talk pretty openly about what steps they're taking to keep their production going as much as they can in the face of the attack. So I, I just thought they did a really good job with that. And they kind of, other companies would be well served to just look at that example. And, you know, hopefully it never happens to them. But if it does, here's a great example, I think, of how to handle this thing. Um, and this is probably a good time to segue into your hoodie scores um, and your hoodie ratings, if you will. So, Tim, I'm going to start with you. How many hoodies would you rate this at? You know, that's a tricky one on this because if you're Norsk Hydro, you're going to put it at a lot higher score than if you're not them, right? So uh, I think ransomware in general, um, there's, it should be sort of preventable and recoverable, right? So if we, if we know that that's the case, that makes it not super high in my book. I'd make it maybe a, a four or a five somewhere in there. Um, probably not much higher than that. What would make it go higher for me, I think, would be if you saw something like maybe a ransomware that for whatever reason was spreading really fast in the wild, um, had no known decryption uh, capability, and um, therefore was likely to be, you know, impacting a wide variety of people and organizations really fast. And we're not seeing that, at least so far, with Locker Goga. So I guess that's why I'm kind of in the maybe four range. Okay. What about you, Tarek? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of compounding on that too. I'd give this like a probably about a five, six out of, out of 10 hoodies because you're right. This one is, so for example, with NotPetya, we saw a weaponization of like the eternal blue exploit, which is um, taking advantage of like a vulnerability in the SMB v1 protocol, um, which allowed it to be wormable. So if you had one um, vulnerable machine that was infected on your LAN, on your network, um, as we all saw, it would spread like wildfire across the network, which makes it a lot of a higher impact. Um, this one, um, Locker Goga, uh, there's no network traffic involved. Um, everything's all self-contained, um, which fits the profile of a lot of ransomware. So that being said, it's um, if you have a sophisticated AV, 
um, and you have proper like data and network segmentation in place, this one's not too bad. Um, I would give this, yeah, about five, five, five and a half out of ten. <laughs> well, switching gears then to our next discussion, which is around the shocking heart defibrillator vulnerabilities. Um, I wanted to come up with a darker title for this, but I just didn't have the heart. Oh. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Sad trombone. <laughs> <laughs> but basically what happened is the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Thursday issued an advisory warning people of severe vulnerabilities in over a dozen heart defibrillators, um, which is obviously very problematic. Um, and so, is that a dozen models or just like 12 individuals? <laughs> I think a dozen models. There are 12 people walking around who really oh, need gosh. to worry about this. <laughs> but for those who aren't familiar, um, basically they're an automated heart defibrillator. So it's a small surgically implanted device in the patient's chest that gives a patient's heart an electric shock, often called a counter shock, which should be the next type of cyber attack, I've decided. Counter shock? Mm. Countershock. I can see I that like trending it. on Twitter and be like, oh, countershock is at it again. Watch out, not pet yet, you know. <laughs> so it's basically that's re used to reestablish a normal heartbeat. So I know we've talked fairly extensively about IoT in general and what it means in the medical device space in terms of having these types of vulnerabilities. So I'd be curious to hear both of your takes, starting with Tim, on this particular vulnerability. Yeah, so this was interesting because... Um, the vulnerability is such that an, a, an attacker could disrupt the um, telemetry uh, to the devices and uh, to and from them and potentially um, disrupt their operation, which uh, is bad news if you're the person that relies on this thing to uh, keep your heart functioning properly. But what's interesting about it is this is not a network-connected thing. So the attacker would have to be physically close to the victim. It, that makes it something that's not, you know, it's not something where a script kitty is going to sit somewhere and suddenly stop a bunch of people's hearts. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, and furthermore, the attacker would have to know that somebody nearby had one of these things and they'd have to be interested in, you know, in hurting that person. So a few things have to kind of come together. This is more something where it would be a, a literally targeted attack if you knew that a person had one of these and you for some reason wanted to hurt them, then you might be able to do that based on these vulnerabilities. It happens all over radio frequency. Um, so this is concerning, obviously, and it's something that should be um, dealt with by the manufacturers, but it is a little bit different from the IoT medical device vulnerabilities we've seen before where the devices were internet connected and could therefore be disrupted remotely from, you know, from anywhere with an internet connection. And that's a very important nuance to your point. And that would be very, that would have to be extremely targeted from what you just described. Right. Which probably is going to affect, I'm assuming, your hoodie rating. And to my knowledge, too, I don't believe this vulnerability has been exploited in the wild. So no Net Geo special um, InfoSec edition on this particular vulnerability. But um, yeah, Tarek, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's got CVs associated with it. So it looks like the people that found the vulnerabilities responsibly disclosed it, thank God. Um, but, you know, the impact here is huge, uh, obviously, because we're dealing with uh, people's lives explicitly. But, 
you know, vulnerabilities are normal in software. Um, to me, it really comes down to how responsible the manufacturer is in their patch response process. And what uh, what scares me is that I would hate to see the medical device companies kind of go the route of the Android marketplace or the Android uh, phone space right now, where you can have manufacturers create an Android phone and then after like a year, two years, just say, you know what, I'm done supporting that, no more patches. So mm -hmm. I'd be a little bit scared of that trend kind of taking over into the medical space where you have these companies that do that. But what happens like in five, six years if I still have that defibrillator and there's a public exploit available and the manufacturer doesn't support it anymore or um, doesn't release a patch in time? That's a lot of risk there. And so even though this specific one, um, you know, an attacker I believe needs to be within 20 feet of radio range and probably have some instrumentation like a hack RF set up. Even though those conditions exist, what happens if there's a defibrillator that does have internet connectivity with like an LTE chip in, you, in it to do over the wire updates or anything? Um, mm -hmm. There's, you know, I, I see as the, like the, the technology bar kind of increases and more capabilities are added, there could be more risk introduced of like remote exploitation mm -hmm. um, if it's not done right. And if you read the CVEs, this isn't done right. This is what's scary to me is that the protocol used for communication, you're talking about the telemetry, Tim, the protocol used didn't have any checks in place for data, tamper, data tampering or authentication or authorization, mm. nor encryption. So the scary part is that, and, you know, if you wanted to fuzz or tamper with the data in transit, let's say there's certain values being transmitted, right? Uh, if you overrode one of those values and caused the defibrillator to maybe send a signal that it shouldn't to, I mean, the impact could kill someone. Um, so that is super scary to me. And one of the things I've wondered about for a long time with um, different ways of exploiting vulnerabilities and also just attacking systems more broadly is what if the attacker takes an approach that's more subtle, you know, rather than just if they do something spectacular, that could cause a lot of damage, obviously get a lot of headlines. And um, but what it would also do is make it obvious where the problem was and um, and call a lot of attention to getting the solution there. What I think might be more insidious is something that is introducing just small disruptions, small wrinkles, stuff that's not necessarily obvious, that might be degrading over time, but not necessarily um, a big spectacular attack. I wonder if these are some of the kinds of things where we might see that kind of approach. You know, I, I mentioned mm -hmm. this a couple of years ago where I said, what if you, um, if you were attacking banks rather than just like draining accounts wholesale across the board, what if you um, started... This is the plot of Office Space. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is what if you started dithering the numbers right. just a little bit, you know, right. so that things are off by a few cents or a few dollars <laughs> like here and there, penny. but like right. all over the place <laughs> so that you're, you question the integrity of the entire system. Absolutely. And, yeah, um, and I think, you know, this is one of those places where that kind of... Um, that kind of thing, not not necessarily specifically these defibrillators, but mm -hmm. stepping back more broadly, looking at connected medical devices, you know, that's one of those things, right? Or change a few things in patient records where suddenly somebody's going to get a treatment that they shouldn't be getting based on, you know, false information in their record, that kind of thing, um, where you would have a slow but important sort of role of, of changes and of disruptions. So we'll have to see how it plays out. Both, both great points, and I'm really curious how that's going to affect your ratings. And Tarek, I'm actually going to start with you. Yeah, you know, uh, so whenever I'm doing like triaging of like vulnerabilities or, or trying to quantify risk, I always look at the impact. 
And the impact here is death, right? So I, I want to say this is a solid like 10 out of 10 hoodies for me uh, because the worst case scenario is somebody dies from it. So that's a pretty big impact. Absolutely. What about you, Tim? Yeah, I, it, this is interesting. It's interesting hearing our different philosophies about these. I mean, I was, I was initially thinking of, of putting it a lot lower, not because it wouldn't be an incredibly high impact for, for an actual victim, but because of the mitigating factor of the attacker has to be physically there. And as I understand it from the article, also the, um, the doctor actually has to have opened some software uh, into the thing. So there's there's a few conditions that actually have to be met before the attacker could um, take advantage of this and exploit it. So those are mitigating to me, and they would bring it down to, I don't know, six or seven hoodies maybe for me. But the implication here is a lot bigger, and that um, suggests that, you know, I think what we're talking about is there could be more and more, like, ten hoodie things down the road um, if we don't get our arms around how to deal with security for Internet of Things. All right. Well, I think we're in perfect timing here to dive into our final topic, which is introducing Endless SSH, the pit of despair. Does anybody know what I'm referencing here with the pit of despair? You're in the pit of despair. <laughs> <coughs> You're in the pit of despair. <laughs> So nobody? <laughs> no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I just made that up. Where did that come from? <laughs> so Tim knows. A little Princess Bride action. Can't go wrong. Um, so in this particular article, a gentleman by the name of Chris Wellens created Endless SSH, which is a tar pit. So first of all, Tarek, I have to ask you, what is a tar pit? It's, uh, so the name originally comes from like the La Brea tar pits with the dinosaurs and getting stuck and all that jazz uh <laughs> um, that whole thing that you know that whole <laughs> dinosaur oil thing um, but tar pitting it's it's kind of an interesting technique and um you don't really see it implement implemented too much in the enterprise space but effectively what it is is um usually you see it associated with like honey pots what it is is you have somebody who will spin up a service like a web server or a uh in this case ssh server um and an attacker will attempt to connect to it to kind of go back to what you're talking about, Tim, looking using like weak passwords. And a lot of this is automated too nowadays. If you spin up like a an SSH service, go look through your var logs, your SSH logs, you'll see it. You'll see all kinds of uh, nasty things trying to connect there. So what tar pitting does is it, it in, during the handshake process of a lot of these services, what it does is that it actually through, uh, and it's gotta be a TCP service generally, um, what it does is it actually keeps the handshake open so attackers are still using resources to try to connect to the service but keeps the handle open. And you can do this in a way so it doesn't cause timeouts. So it effectively keeps the session open, the attacker can't do anything, and it just stalls the attacker from what they're doing. So it's a really cool way to like slow down an attacker. Um, it's a really cool way to kind of understand what um, kind of att attackers are really doing, generally speaking, when they're trying to you know, attack your service. It's also very trolly too. Um, there's not really much value in my opinion uh, on deploying it um, in the enterprise unless it's kind of internally. Um, if you want to have like an internal trip wire and, and kind of like a technique to slow an attacker down. Um, but I, I'm generally pretty cautious about these kind of services. I'm just picturing now, you know, <laughs> the, the, you're talking about how it gets in the, in the handshake. Picturing those scenes, we've seen them in movies or whatever, where 
people are shaking hands and somebody's just keep going and keep shaking <laughs> yes. hands and it gets really awkward, <laughs> really, really awkward and nobody can go anywhere or get anything done. That's a perfect That's analogy. That's amazing. I was imagining a T-Rex struggling in tar and then trying to do push-ups after and give high fives. <laughs> I don't know why I wasn't imagining this. I'm a little thing, concerned. Actually. I thought we were on the exact same page. <laughs> you had dinosaurs doing push-ups in your eyes. <laughs> yeah, tar pitting is super cool, though. I, uh, you know, I think it's got its place for like the security research standpoint too. You could definitely, you know, if you're looking to get like trends in attackers and and just kind of like do a little bit of trolley stuff on the attack side, tar pitting is awesome for that. <laughs> tar pay DM. <laughs> <laughs> And I know that brings up an interesting discussion around hacking back, which is a common... Kind of a debated topic. Debate. Yeah, hot yeah. topic, if you will, in InfoSec. And I'm curious where both you lie on that spectrum. Well, first of all, I think anytime you're going to talk about hacking back, you have to give a shout out to Malware Jake <laughs> on Twitter, Jake Williams, who has the best hacking back GIFs. So if you're not familiar with Malware Jake, just like search Malware Jake hacking back Twitter. And you won't be disappointed. Uh, <laughs> he's got some, he pretty much illustrates it really well. I, I think that hacking back in a, um, in a really aggressive way is not a good idea for pr almost all organizations. Um, it's just not going to end well. Uh, this one is interesting because it's not really, I mean, it's like a really subtle version of, you're not even really hacking back. You're just sort of messing with the attacker. And so I don't think it has the same kind of risk associated with it that actual hacking back does. Um, but, you know, I'm with Tarek. I mean, it, it's probably not something you're necessarily going to do as an enterprise company. And um, it's technically an interesting concept. It's an interesting idea. Um, but, yeah, looking more broadly at hacking back, just don't. <laughs> Tim, uh, as tempting as it might here. be. Uh, how do you feel about it? Just don't. <laughs> <laughs> Nike would not like that tagline. That's right. They wouldn't. I like lawyers when they're on my side. And, uh, <laughs> and when you do hacking back, hacking back is like this weird gray area where I feel like uh, lawyers would have to get involved. And I'd be really curious uh, what they think about it. Because on one hand, you're slowing down an attacker. On the other hand, you could spin it in a way to saying you're dosing the attacker, which is an attack unto itself. So it's this weird gray area where I really wouldn't want to recommend people kind of dive into. You could open yourself up to some legalities. But on top of, the, like, the lawyer stuff, um, I think we don't have a strong enough case nowadays with uh, attribution to say it's okay to attack back. Like, mm. number one, you know, with the, with the way that attackers commonly proxy, they, you know, compromise um, networks, like benign networks. Like, watering hole attacks are a great example. Um, if you see an attack uh, come from a legit benign site that's been compromised and you attack back, you are thus attacking a completely innocent company. So just even out of the gate, it's just it's a bad idea. It's opening up um, all kinds of messes where I think the Internet's already kind of in a kind of a sad, fragile state as is. We're only going to be throwing you know fuel on the fire here. Um, I don't trust people to get it right. A fair concern. Um, and I think, too, leading in here to the hoodie ratings, this is we're going to have to back into this a little differently because this isn't an example of an actual attack. Let's talk about this in terms of risk to your organization than for using something like a tar pit. 
Um, and maybe hoodies are more like lawyer briefcases in this particular <laughs> the situation. Right. The briefcases scale, if you will. What What do you two think in terms of risk to your organization using something like Endless SSH, which probably for the benefit of the person who created this was not for an enterprise environment, but we're applying that in this circumstance. How many briefcases would you say? I would say, you know, if you compare this to traditional, the things that we think about with hacking back, I would say it's actually somewhat low because you're going to slow down the attacker. I guess there's the risk that you might sort of make them mad. Uh, and that is, that's definitely the risk with, um, you know, a more in-your-face kind of hacking back. Um, and even with this, it's possible that you'll just irritate them and then they might try other things against you. So there's, there's probably some risk. I don't know anything about the legality or not of deliberately slowing down your service in the face of an attack. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's any sort of explicit or implied commitment to attackers of a quality of service that you'll keep up for them. <laughs> so, so I'm pretty sure you're on relatively safe ground here and you're not doing them harm other than frustration. So uh, to me, this is just like one briefcase probably um, compared to it like in your face hacking back. Yeah, I would definitely mimic the one briefcase thing. I think this is, uh, I think from a security like engineering perspective, you probably have more important things to go solve, um, such as like your, rather than focusing on active defense, worrying about how strong your detection capabilities are, um, you know, tar pitting. I think it's a, I think it's a cool project and, you know, I think it'd be something to play around with on like a small home server VPS kind of a setup. Um, but, you know, shifting over to the enterprise, you probably have bigger fish to fry. So I would definitely do one out of ten lawyer briefcases on this. <laughs> one out of ten Johnny Cochran's. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Rest in peace. Amazing. Amazing. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at blog.domaintools.com. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's it for this week. We'll see you again next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.